We are in 1 Peter this morning, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, to, well, I'll start this way. This week is a bit different. We are not in Exodus this week, and let me explain why for a moment, because tomorrow is an important day for us as Protestant evangelical Christians, and I am not talking about Halloween. Uh, that is not important to us. I'm talking about a day called Reformation Day. Uh, it's an important or commemorated day because just over 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, you might have heard of this guy, a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. I think a photo may go up of him if that was on there. There it is. Look at that good-looking guy. Uh, Martin Luther, you might have heard of this man, but he famously nailed a document to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany that unwittingly uh, turned the world upside down in the years that would follow. That document would eventually be known as Luther's 95 Theses, which is a really nice way of saying, these are 95 problems I have with the Catholic Church. Uh, it wasn't his grocery list. It was a list of theological grievances exposing to him and to many others the radically unbiblical teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And thanks to the recent invention of the printing press, that document went viral, as we would call it today. Uh, Luther was a monk in the Catholic Church. He admits, though, in his own biography that he was not converted until after his personal study of the book of Romans, where he says that he discovered the true gospel through the Apostle Paul's explanation of justification, that is, how a person is made right with God, his explanation of justification by faith alone through grace alone, apart from works, religious works, and apart from church traditions. And so, as Luther was led by the Holy Spirit, now that he was converted, uh, he began to see other related truths found in Scripture, and, and he began to see how that medieval Catholic church had drifted far away from the teachings of the Bible. And so, he sought in all courage and conviction to reform the Catholic Church. And without getting into the weeds of all that, because that's not our purpose this morning, let me just summarize by saying it did not work. Uh, he did not reform the Catholic Church because, as it turns out, people in power don't like to give up their power, and they certainly don't like being told that they're wrong. And so, instead of listening to Luther, they canceled Luther. They excommunicated him and anyone else who sided with his Protestant reforms, and therefore a church split happened, and the Protestant Reformation began. And so, sort of to commemorate or remember this day, and really to protect us 500 years later, to protect us from being historically naive, to forget that there were things that happened uh, prior to 1970 in our church history that can inform us on how we should do church or why things are the way that they are. To, to inform us a little bit more, for the last few years, we have taken the last Sunday in October to sort of look at Scripture but do it 
under the heading of thinking about main areas of Protestant doctrine that surfaced from this movement. And we've done that by kind of looking at some key figures. One of them, we looked at Martin Luther and the way he talked about justification by faith. Uh, We've also considered some of the five solas. You may have heard of these. We were just singing about one a moment ago, uh, which are these tight statements, uh, sola scriptura, sola fide. You may have heard those before, but they essentially summarize the gospel in that we believe that salvation is revealed in Scripture alone, not by church tradition, uh, by faith alone. It's received by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, and all of it is to God's glory alone. Those are some of the five solas. But there were other themes that came out of this movement. Really, it was recovered in this movement that was lost at that time. And one of them we are going to consider this week and the implications it has on us. And it is (coughs) the biblical doctrine of what they called the priesthood of all believers. So that's why we're in 1 Peter today. Um, And let me just say, I'm not going to talk directly about the priesthood of all believers yet. We'll save that to the end. We'll let Scripture sort of inform us a little bit more, and then it'll be easier by the end to understand. So why don't we look at 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. We'll read it. Before we do, let me pray for us. God, we come before you, and um, God, it is our desire, Lord, to continue to walk in faithfulness to your word, not just teaching your word, not just reading it for ourselves and understanding it, but actually living by it. And uh, not just our own personal Christian lives, but even the way we think about the church. Because we could be teaching the Bible, but are we doing all the things that the Bible tells us to do? And, and we can easily, just like the church back in Luther's day, had gone so far off the rails when they moved off of your word and started, started inputting all of these other things. God, we can do those same things. And so we need to constantly be reforming our own hearts and our own practices back to the teachings of Scripture. So help us to think about it that way uh, this morning. If we need correction, uh, we pray by your Spirit that you would give us the ability to see those things and make those corrections in our lives. Uh, But God, we commit our time of study to you and pray that you would lead us into your truth, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Peter in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 4. He writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people 
for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We will pause there, just in case you haven't noticed. Uh, But being a Christian in today's culture is not exactly the cool thing to do anymore. There was a time in this country, in our history, when not only being a Christian was the acceptable thing to do, it was the expected thing to do. Decades ago, if you did not go to church, you were a strange person. In fact, I've even been told that even here in this town, decades ago even, um, that you couldn't get a loan from a bank if you couldn't prove that you were a member of a church. And friends, let's just be clear, that's not Christianity, that's, that's Christendom, which is a totally different thing. Nevertheless, things have changed over the years, haven't they? I've never seen that form of Christianity in my, in my time of being a Christian. Uh, again, in the past, it was expected and acceptable. Now, it is increasingly detestable to be a Christian in the world, which leaves us with some questions for those of us who believe. How do we live in such a world? How do we survive? How can the church continue on? (coughs) And what do we do as Christians when all of our natural sources of identity and community have become hostile environments, where our former friend group all of a sudden doesn't want to associate with us anymore? Maybe when some family members say, you know what, that guy's a weirdo, and whenever I'm around him, uh, I feel guilty, and so I'd rather not be around him. What do we do when following Jesus isn't cool, and we've lost all the things that we hold dear? It's to questions like that, that Peter, the apostle to the Jewish believers, writes this letter in 1 Peter. That's the context of the moment. In chapter 1, the letter generally, he says, is written, I'm writing to the elect exiles. And then he says more specifically, those who are scattered, this is in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, scattered in the dispersion due to persecution. So this was an event known as the diaspora or the diaspora, however you want to say it, tomato, tomato, uh, that occurred several years after Pentecost. This was a moment that happened in Jerusalem, persecution happened, and then there was a dispersion and Jewish Christians scattered all over the regions. So these are Christians originally from Jerusalem, but are now scattered all over. That is who he is writing to. And the reason for the letter is obvious based on their situation. He's writing to encourage them how to persevere in the midst of hostility, in a world where Christianity isn't cool, and to help them think biblically and theologically on how to live in a hostile world in light of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished. And by understanding the gospel not just how it saves, but how it transforms our lives in every area of our lives. He wants to give some practical ways it does that. And he helps them really in three areas. How to reduce suffering as a Christian. Again, in a world that is hostile, how how do I, I'm never going to 
fully get rid of persecution or rejection, but how do I minimize that? So that's one thing he's trying to do in the letter. A second thing is, how do I display the gospel to my fellow Christian? How do I maintain unity and all of these things? And then thirdly, even though the world is hostile, I'm still called to win the world. So how do I do that? How do I do these three things? And he talks about that in a variety of ways. But in chapter 2, he has a specific facet of the Christian life in mind, and it has to do with our understanding of what it means to be the church. What does it mean to belong to the church? What is the church is a great question to ask yourself. What does it mean to be a member or belong to a local body of believers? Do I need to belong to a church? And what is the purpose of the church in the world now? How come when I believe in Jesus, didn't I just instantly go up to heaven? What is the reason for why God left us all here right now? These are great questions to ask, and Peter addresses some of those here in chapter 2. And to help us understand, I've broken it up into kind of four headings, and I've summarized it in one sentence, and it's this, that even in the midst of a hostile world, you now belong to a living community for the purpose of spiritual activity in fulfillment of prophetic history, having received a new identity. That's a mouthful, but it'll be up on the screen for a moment. And we're going to look at all four of those movements, and we'll draw some applications along the way. And then at the end, I'll come back to that priesthood of all believers idea, because I think it'll make more sense. But let's start with that first idea, a living community. Keep in mind that Peter is writing to a dispersed group of people, Jews, originally from Jerusalem, now who believe in Jesus. They're displaced from family from friends, from workplaces, from houses, from everything that they are familiar with. I've moved a lot in my life, but I know there are people who have lived in Canby their whole lives. And could you imagine not living here after living here for so long and now being in a completely different culture where different languages are being spoken? That's what's going on here. And now they are strangers in a strange land. In fact, in verse 11... Peter refers to them as sojourners and strangers in some translations. It says exiles in the ESV. And as you all know, much of our identity, much of people's identity and security is found in their community that they come from. And for these people, it was the same thing, but it was even greater because these were Jewish believers from Jerusalem. I mean, this was the city of David. This is where the temple was located. So not only were they gone from all of the other familiar sights and smells and people, they were far away from home. They were removed from one of the central locations of their cultural and religious identity. The temple was gone. And so now they're like, what do we do? And insecurity and loneliness and all of these things began to fill them up. So what does Peter do? Well, he does what any good pastor, what any good Christian should do. He points them to an even greater biblical reality that is found in Jesus. Yes, they had lost everything. They were kicked out of their community. However, what Peter is saying is through faith in the gospel, they have gained something so much better than that temple, than that thing that they 
looked to for years and years and generations. They were a part of a living community founded by Christ. In verse 4, he uses the image of the temple as a metaphor for what they now have in the church community. And he starts by pointing them to Christ who, like them, hey, he was also rejected from his community. But in God's sight, he says, Jesus was chosen and precious though the world reject him, which means that in God's sight, though you are rejected, you too, like Christ, are chosen and precious. And the image of Jesus as the cornerstone of the church, like like the cornerstone of the temple, it was that first stone laid down that everything else finds its equilibrium off of. Jesus guides and directs the church who are also living stones as opposed to the unliving stones of the temple. So you can see he's taking the image of the temple and just elevating it and saying, this is what you have is so much better than that thing that you're longing for in your past. And so Peter is doing or showing that though the temple was a staple of Jewish life and culture, it doesn't compare to what they now have in the living community of the church founded on Christ. Because now, through this living community, they can belong to one another no matter where they are living. They don't need to be in a certain location. They don't need to be in Jerusalem to experience community, spiritual community. Instead, even in their exilic state, Where God's people are gathered in covenant community, God Himself is there with them. So even us, as as the world out there grows increasingly hostile toward Christianity, the church becomes that living community where we feel like, you know what, I don't belong out there, and we shouldn't feel that way. Instead, we can come to the body of believers and say, I know that there there is a group of people where I belong. But it gets even better. Because not only do they have a new and better community through Christ and His church, but they also have a new spiritual activity. Because remember, our identity is formed by all kinds of things. We, we find identity in the community we belong to. We also find identity in the, in the things that we do, right? So he says, you have a new spiritual activity. Before Christ, all the spiritual activity was limited to a particular place and from a particular group of people. It was limited to the temple, which we've already talked about, and it was limited to the Levitical priesthood, which as we go through Exodus, we'll see more and more of that. But even then, there was only a few people in the Levitical priesthood who had the ability to perform particular tasks within that temple between the people and God. For example, the high priest every year on the Day of Atonement, only he was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies to make animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. So again, because of this dispersion, because of this diaspora, and because of their newfound faith in Jesus, not only has their need of the temple changed through this living community, but he's saying your activity has changed as well. They have no need of those old covenant priesthood sacrifices because it's all gone. All those things were fulfilled in the priestly ministry of Jesus when He offered up His own life on the cross as a sacrifice for all of man's sins, those who come to Him by faith. In the gospel, the old was done away with, and the new has come. 
And what Peter says is that no longer is there need for dead sacrifices to be made through only a few select group of people. Instead, now if you're in Christ, all of God's people have been ordained, I guess you could say, as priests to God, which means they themselves can offer up their whole lives in worship, spiritual worship and spiritual sacrifice to Him. So what does that mean practically? And I'll make this connection to the priesthood of all believers later, but what it means practically for starters is obviously there's no animal sacrifices anymore, but more specifically, what it means is that everyday activities that God's people do are able to bring glory to Him. When we go to work, whatever the thing is that you do for your job or whether you're a student in school, what you do throughout your day, if you do it as unto the Lord, that is a living sacrifice. When you pick up your kids from school, when you love your spouse well, when you do chores even around the house or a service for a friend or even an enemy as unto the Lord. These are all spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And the good news is every single Christian can participate in this. This isn't just set apart for a unique group of people, an elite class of Christian. This is for Every single Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We can, whatever the things that we are doing, bring glory to Him. But there is a second activity. Peter also writes that the church is to proclaim the excellencies of Him. If you look down toward the latter part of this section, in other words, the purpose of of the church, what our spiritual activity is doing is not just ministering to one another, but we are to proclaim as well to the world through our distinct lives the wonder and glory and grace of God that is available even to them for all who come to Jesus by faith. Look at the grace I have received. You can have that too, because that's how good and gracious God is. This is what Peter is saying. So again, connecting this activity to the temple, it is far better what he's saying. It's far better what you have now in Christ. It's easier to take the church out into the world than to call the world to come to the temple to worship in Jerusalem. This is a much better plan that God has as they proclaim the excellencies of him. So this is the spiritual activity that Peter wants to encourage his readers to do. You have a new purpose in your new activity. But what he does next is he uses scripture to prove his point and to show, hey, this was all a part of God's plan from the very beginning. That their displacement wasn't a surprise to God, though it may have been a surprise to them, but it was an inevitable result of his saving plan in the world. So my third point is you're a part of a prophetic history. In many ways, all these verses, everything that he's saying here is an allusion to the Old Testament, talking about the temple and the priesthood and all of these things. But for the sake of clarity, Peter just makes a few direct references there. He says, as the Scriptures say, in verses 6 through 8, he makes three to four clear references from the Old Testament. Testament. And to a mostly Jewish audience, 
This was significant because they needed to hear. This wasn't just some, you know, mental, theological judo that Peter was doing. Peter was saying, look at the text. Look at what the Scripture has said. This has been God's plan from the very beginning, and God made it clear He would send a Savior, and that Savior would redeem His people, but that Savior would would be rejected by the world. This is not a surprise to you. You should know the Scriptures and what this was designed to do for them was to help them see that if God had this plan from the very beginning, and if He knew that Jesus would suffer rejection and crucifixion, and if He did all of that in order to bring about a greater good in the lives of His people, then certainly He could redeem the time they were spending in exile, and that He could take the broken pieces of their lives and make something beautiful out of it, which also means, I guess more supremely, God can be trusted. You can trust His Word. You can trust that He will fulfill everything that He said He would to His people. He can be trusted over and over and over again. And not only does He tell them about the rejection of Jesus as this cornerstone that that the builders threw away, like the people threw away, but God accepted. It was chosen and precious to Him. And not only does he show how they belong to Jesus as as living stones and therefore will not be put to shame, he also explains why they were rejected. You see, I think as Christians, we forget that Jesus said in the Gospels that the world will reject you, um, but remember that it rejected him first. We talk as Christians about the free gift of salvation But we forget or ignore the cost of discipleship in the world. And and for some reason, we deceive ourselves or others in thinking that if you come to Jesus and put your trust in God, that everything is going to be sunshine and sliced apples every day. But Peter, he was honest with his readers in chapter 4, verse 12. I love this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. He's saying, listen, you belong to Christ, and because you belong to Christ, you will experience difficulty and rejection in the same way that the world rejected Him. And be encouraged by this. You're not suffering because you did something wrong. You're suffering because you belong to Jesus, and you should be encouraged by that. But he has one more remark on the subject to sort of wrap it all up together, and it's what I'm calling a, a gracious identity. There's two key words in the final section in verse 9, which are the words chosen and called. You know, being secure in who you are in the face of difficult situations is is dependent upon your personal identity, who you know yourself to be. And people form their identity through the various means, like I've talked about, the community they come from, uh, the things that they do, (coughs) or the things that they have accomplished. They also form their identity through historical connections. This is why people do the whole like family tree thing and find out what 
how far back their uh, ancestors go because they're trying to discover really who they are. But what Peter does here is he reminds them that their identity, who they are, is even deeper than that. They are the chosen people of God, called by God, adopted by Him. And friends, I can say through personal experience that nothing can get you through traumatic events, rejection by people, hostility in your life. Nothing can get you through those events better than knowing who you are in Christ and that you are exactly where He wants you to be. There's nothing better. I mean, the world, everything could be against you. If you know those two things, who you are in Christ and that you are exactly where He has called you to be, then you can weather any storm. And that's what Peter is doing here. If you knew like Paul did, that in that moment when he was in a jail cell, that he was in the exact place, in the exact will of God, Paul would have said, I'd rather be right here in this jail cell knowing I'm in the will of God than being outside of the will of God sitting on some beach in Tahiti. That would be miserable because he would know he's outside of the will of God right there. You'll be anywhere. Everything could be falling apart. But if you know you're in God's will, he's right there with you and there is no safer place to be. Peter is saying he chose you not because you were better than the next person, not because you were smarter or or better looking or came from a better family. It wasn't any of those things. God doesn't see people the way we see people or choose people the way we choose people. In fact, you know what God sees when He sees us? His image on every human being, and He sees that we're all made of dust. We're all made of the same stuff. If you want to put it this way, we're all just dirt bags, And, and we're all sinful, that's what God sees when He sees every single human being. We all, we're all on this flat playing field. So God doesn't choose some for salvation because they are better than the next. Instead, we are told He chose us just simply by His mercy and grace, which is a mystery for sure. But He chose us, He pulled us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we are His people so we can boast not in ourselves but in His grace and in His mercy. And because of that, not only are we called priests able to offer up spiritual sacrifices to Him that are acceptable to Him, but He says basically, you guys are royalty now. You you didn't belong in the kingdom and now you're in the kingdom and you're not just servants in the kingdom, but you're a part of the royal family. He chose you. He called you and When He did, He set you apart and made you holy, made you distinct from the world. And friends, when when that happens, again, the world will reject you as it rejected Him. But all that should mean to you is that you are secure in your identity in Christ. It's just further proof that you belong to Him. And what this new identity does is it makes you secure in that salvation in the midst of of any trial. You aren't suffering again because you did something wrong, but because you now belong to Jesus. I I think a lot of Christians struggle today to feel secure in their faith, but this should never be the case because you are never more secure than when you are in Christ because it isn't by 
works or religion or ethnicity or family background or church traditions that you are saved or kept saved, but by His grace alone, through faith alone, in the Son of God alone, in Christ alone. And this is all because God alone will receive the glory for your salvation, not any of us. But what of the topic of the priesthood of all believers? Let's come to that now. What, how does this text inform that discussion, and why does it matter so much? It, it, it matters because in the medieval Catholic church, and even still today, there was a division in classes of Christians. There was, uh, and in their relationship to the church, it was what some refer to as the sacred-secular divide. There were some people who were doing all the sacred, you know, holy, godly Christian work, and then the people who weren't ordained or working for the church, everybody else was just kind of secular. They were just the ones out there, and they were receiving the ministry of the people in the church. And, and because of that, they were viewed as having this higher spirituality. It was as if they were closer to God and, and no one could really get that close as those people in the church. Because the view was that, again, they were doing spiritual things and you were doing unspiritual things. If ordinary, mundane things, you couldn't actually bring glory to God from those things. And this divide also taught that if you weren't in that sacred club and just one of those secular people, then you needed those sacred people to have access to God, right? So you couldn't read the Bible on your own, according to the medieval church. Instead, you had to go to the priest and have them read it because it was not in your language, and you couldn't understand it for yourself. They had to interpret it for you, and, and it also meant you needed to confess your sins to them because they mediated between you and God, and it also meant that they had spiritual authority over you in matters of church tradition, so you could see this was not a good situation. And Luther and the other reformers took a lot of issue with this. Not because it wasn't just helpful and, and there was power trips going on, but because none of that was based in Scripture. And, and this one text in 1 Peter is significant proof to show that that was never a part of God's plan. That was what they were doing in the past. But through Christ, all of that was leveled, and now we are all the priesthood of believers, not just a select few. And some of you may be thinking, but Aaron, that was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Why are we talking about this now? We are not in that medieval church. We're not in the midst of that hostile reformation. Why are we discussing this sacred, secular divide? That, that stuff doesn't happen in normal churches today. It absolutely does. For example, there are some church leadership structures today where the leaders of the church essentially have all authority to make all decisions, and they come up with different titles for those positions, but essentially they might as well just call them the Pope because they are infallible in all that they say and in all that they do. When Scripture teaches that there's only one mediator between God and man, and His name is not whoever your name is. His name is Jesus. But on the other side of that, if you're a Christian and you don't read the Bible for yourself, instead you just listen to what the pastor says and you don't act like the Bereans 
who go and test those things against the Scriptures, then you're not also exercising this great privilege that you have as the priesthood of all believers. And if you don't see the church as a living community that you need to belong to in the midst of a hostile world, then you aren't understanding your place as the body of Christ, as a stone that's being built into this spiritual house, you're not, you're not seeing your part in that. Jesus didn't die so that we could just live our lives watching other people worship on YouTube, right? We're not, we need to participate, not be uh, people who are just looking and attending things. Jesus didn't die to, or Jesus died to adopt you into the royal family and to connect you to a living community to give you a purpose through spiritual activity, both for your fellow believer and for you, right? The benefit is both and, and for the world around you. Again, Christians don't just show up. They don't just watch. This isn't a spectator sport. They belong to a family, to a body, to a spiritual house pictured as living stones being built up to one another. We serve one another even as we offer spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. There's so many things we can go off on this, and maybe we'll mention some in the podcast, but this doctrine was so important to Luther and many of the other reformers that they gave their lives in trying to fight for it, for the commoner who was essentially not living what, or able to live what God had called them to in Scripture. And they defended this for the sake of the gospel and God's people. And, and I think this is good for us to think about these subjects so that we don't drift as well as corporately as a church, but even personally in our own Christian lives. But remember what God has called us too as well, for our own good, for the good of the world, and obviously for the glory of God. But what an amazing calling we have as Christians. What an amazing opportunity we have that in the midst of a hostile world, Peter is saying, are you kidding me? Look at how much better it is that we have as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus. Why don't we pray together? God, we come before you and and. Lord, we can get so down on ourselves because of the situation we are in. We can only see what's right in front of us. And so we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for uh, this word from Peter to give this gospel perspective of all that we have in Christ. Yes, this momentary affliction is difficult, but through it, you are conforming us to greater degrees of glory, that what we have in the church today and the fact that we can belong to a diverse group of people united in Christ and have community, even though the former community that we had rejects us, we have something so much better through what you have purchased for us on the cross, and that is the body of Christ. Lord, help us to to celebrate that, to give thanks for that, to participate in that, to commit ourselves to that end for our good, for the sake of the world, and also for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.